and welcome back to the Eccles Business Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Johnson, and I'm so glad you've joined us as we continue our conversation about economic equality. Today, we are diving into the history of banking and financial structures in the United States and how they have often excluded minority groups. We'll also be talking about some exciting developments right here in Utah aimed at addressing and closing the racial wealth gap. Joining me for this conversation are Ashley Bell and Sui Ling Pinnock. Ashley Bell is co-founder and general counsel of the National Black Bank Foundation, where he serves as the lead director of the Minority Depository Institution Innovation Committee. Ashley is founder and chief executive officer of Ready Financial Inc., a financial technology platform that is disrupting the mortgage industry by creating a path to home ownership that eliminates the need for credit scores. Ashley is also chairman of the board and CEO of Redemption Holding Company, a Black-owned holding company that recently announced its agreement to purchase Utah-based Holiday Bank & Trust, marking the first time in American history that an existing commercial bank will become a Black-owned minority depository institution through acquisition. Sui Ling Pinnock is a visionary leader, social entrepreneur, and international trainer and facilitator with a passion for empowering today's leaders to rethink, create, and innovate. She currently serves as Senior Vice President of Culture for Zions Bank. In this role, she is responsible for directing the bank's strategic vision, developing a comprehensive diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, and delivering on a plan of action to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion across the bank and the communities that it serves. Ashley, Sui Ling, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us, Francis. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the things that we're talking about today is the history of financial and banking structures in the U.S. and how they led to the racial wealth gaps that we see today. This is something that I think a lot of us, myself included, might not be very familiar with. So Ashley, to get us started, I'm hoping that you can kind of walk us through that history. Yeah, and I really appreciate you asking the question because I think anytime we try to really you know, be intellectually honest and and have depth with issues as complex, we got a level set. And unfortunately, depending on where you live, you have a different level of education about all the nuances of American history. Some school systems lean into different things. You could easily live in a part of the country where you could completely miss everything I'm about to say, or you could live in a place that may find these aspects of history more important to give context to students, and you may know some of this. So either way, it's great to have this sort of level setting. So as we all try to think of the best ideas to rectify the challenges that we've had as a country, we do so with the same basis of knowledge and not just portions of it. And so you start with the understanding that this country was founded on great ideals and a great capitalist system, but that capitalism has yet to truly be tried in the way it was intended, right? Capitalism we know works. It just hasn't been proven yet to work for everybody. And that's not because of the structure of capitalism. It's because of people putting things in the way to really prevent a free marketplace. And so when you start at the origins of a free marketplace, 
that begins with everyone being able to work for a wage of which their skills dictate what that wage is. And so when you start off with a capitalist system, we have millions of people in your country that aren't allowed to be a part of it because they you won't pay them for their wages. You kind of start off with a, a sort of fraudulent capitalist system, a faux capitalist system, if you would. And so you create this great advantage that America had. It grew economically very quickly because it, on one hand, talked about capitalism, and on the other hand, denied certain people the right to be paid a meaningful wage for their work. And that allowed some business owners, if you know, and I think if any business owner thought about if I looked at their bottom line and didn't have to pay for the labor, everybody would be doing well. You just automatically would. If you could look at your bottom line in any business that you have and you say, you know what? I pay for nobody. So <laughs> I just get free labor. So you can imagine what that would look like and what that would look like. Pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. So when you see that happening for hundreds of years, you see a great boom of economic activity in our country. But you then at some point see a reckoning of people wanting to see capitalism as well as a more just economy and a more just system begin this movement of a more ethical America that we see now still working its way through saying, well, why don't we let everybody have access to the capital system? Let's let people get paid a fair wage for their labor. Or at least at that point, the argument was, do you pay them at all? Are they free people at all? Are they people at all? And so once you get past that initial argument and you say, okay, well, the African slaves that we bring to this country are people and we should probably pay them, let them get paid. Then the conversation starts about the greatest economic journey that any people on the planet have ever had to have. And in that, you tell these same people that, okay, now that you were property, that you were capital, if you would, capital on someone's balance sheet, let's begin the journey to you becoming capitalist. And that journey was thought about by our Congress, and our Congress created what was called the Freedmen's Bureau for the purpose of that journey, helping people that were once on a balance sheet to try to create balance sheets of their own. And no one had ever tried to do that before. So it was an effort that was started with the concept that let's start with education. So the Freedmen's Bureau honestly set up bureaus all throughout where there were Black people in the country, like small offices. Just the federal government put offices everywhere so that they could learn how to save. It was, let me teach you how to be frugal. Let me teach you how to save your money. And so a lot of that was very educational and taking people that most of them couldn't read to try to understanding how the American economy works. So that was a positive. The second thing was the Freemans Bureau was created as a bank. So our government, our Congress, our president said, we're gonna create a free man's, now free person, have a bank where you can put money. And it was thought that give the black people their own bank, give them their own bank. And that way they can circulate their money and can catch up quicker to the rest of us in the economy. And we can see one day a more equitable system because everybody knew then that if you're going to be in America, you got to have a pathway to creating opportunities for yourself through the capitalist system. So that was the path. The problem with the path was that those who did not truly want to see equality, who understood very clearly that in a capitalist system, credit is what creates wealth. It is the ability to leverage assets and reputation and you as a, someone known to be able to pay things back, to be able to get money when you don't have money and create more money. That's what credit does. And so because they truly were worried that the African-American laborer who's now free would catch up, they made it so the Freedmen's Bureau had one restriction. That restriction was it cannot loan money. So from the outset, 
You have this concept to where we know banks are critical to becoming an American, to understanding the economic system from you going on this journey from being capital to capitalist. You need a bank. We know that. So it has never been controverted that people of color needed their own bank because it was an understanding that the existing banks in the country were not going to give them any fair shake. And America just sort of understood that as a, all right, let's just be realistic. We must create a bank of their own because if we leave them to the existing banking structure, the discrimination will be so rampant that it won't even work. They won't even get a chance. And so we have to create a black bank for them. But the people who ran the bank turned it into a Ponzi scheme. And before the gig was up, when the Ponzi scheme was running to its end, they decided to bring in the first African-American president of the bank. And this is critical because you had a bank created for free people, but there was no black people running it. Now they weren't tellers. They were, some of them were working in the stations, but nobody was running it. They brought in the great abolitionist, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who was a member of Congress, said, I don't know anything about banking, but because I care so deeply about my people and I understand that banks are critical, I will become the first African-American president of Freedmen's Bureau. And he did. And the moment he did, he said, I don't understand what this system does, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take $10,000 of my own money, which is dang near like a million dollars right now. Frederick Douglass took $10,000 of his own money and said, I'm going to invest it in my own bank and just see what happens, see where it goes. So he puts $10,000 of his own money in his own bank and in Freedmen's Bureau and watched it end up in Colorado. And a scheme of where it was land speculation and paying back some sort of Ponzi scheme and the money evaporated. And once he realized that he was throwing money in a hole, he goes to Congress in 1874 and says, I can't ask people from my community to spend one more of their hard-earned pennies to put into this bank. This bank is fraudulent. This bank is never intended to create wealth for African-Americans. It was a bait and switch, and it needs to be shut down. And so with the stroke of a pen, Congress agreed. Everybody said, you're right. This has been a hoax. And it was the greatest fraud perpetrated on American citizenry by their own people. Because we're citizens now. Black people are citizens. And they canceled the Freedmen's Bureau in a stroke of a pen. And with that cancellation, the Freedmen's Bureau held 70% of the black wealth in our country. With that stroke of a pen, nobody got their money back. There was no FDIC insurance. It wiped out all of the black wealth created from the moment they were freed until 1874. Totally wiped it out. No IOU. No nothing. You just lose all your money. W.E.B. Du Bois, the great philanthropist, a great scholar came in and said, it would have been better off if African-Americans had been slaves another decade than to suffer the psychological effects of having your government create a bank for you, bait and switch you, take all of your money and shrug their shoulders and say, good luck. Wow. That's powerful. So as we level set all these hundreds of years later, and we look at our system, the distrust that African-Americans have towards banks is rooted in what W.E.B. Du Bois said. It's why Black grandmothers and Hispanic grandmothers keep money in their couches and in their beds instead of putting it in banks because that legacy has been passed down for so long. And so as we talk about the future of African-American-owned banks and why they are needed, it is because discrimination happens in every aspect of our country, but today is still relevant. We all should be able to put money in our, on our banks and our community and food on our table. If everybody can do that and has the access to use their God-given talents to the best of their ability in the greatest country in the world, then the rest of this stuff kind of fixes itself. 
But we have to recognize there's been a very strategic history of discrimination in the banking and finance system that is currently still perpetuated. Ashley, so much to unpack here, and I appreciate you walking us through it so thoroughly and so carefully because I think you're right that this is not something that we are all aware of. And certainly as a white person myself, I've never thought, oh, this bank might steal my money (laughs) or send it somewhere else. So something that we all really need to be aware of. What is the economic consequence of the racial wealth gap for our economy as a whole? So we know what it does to individuals, right? I don't have the opportunity to leverage capital. I don't have the opportunity to grow my wealth. I'm missing chances by not being able to participate fully in a financial structure. But what about for our our whole economy? What is the impact? It's huge. So there's been several studies that show there's been over a trillion dollar impact that discrimination and lack of access to capital to underserved communities is costing us a trillion dollars annually in our economy in spending. This is spending power that communities would have more of if they had access to the capital. And when you think about it holistically, the more you stymie the economy by telling people they can't have access to capital to take a risk and start their own business, to be able to receive the a right capital to own their own home and create assets that way through appreciative home value. Then you take a marginalized community and you leave them with fewer options, many of which become the burden of the state, many of that which becomes welfare programs, many of that becomes more government assistance. And these people have to be reliant on that to be able to survive. So if you really want to see a less of a reliance on the government having to step in and take care of people that can't make it work, then give them the opportunity to take a risk on themselves. There's no more greater act of self-determination than entrepreneurship. And you have so many entrepreneurs in these marginalized communities that just need access to create the businesses. And many times these are small businesses that could easily be sustained in these small economies in their own community, but they don't get the access to do so. I think this is such a critical part of the conversation because it's very easy if you are not experiencing discrimination, if you are not part of a minoritized group, when we talk about something like a racial wealth gap to say, well, that doesn't impact me, right? I can care about it because I care about other people. Dr. King said it best when he talked about all of us being in a web of mutuality. What affects one of us affects all of us. And I think this is such a critical point. If you choose to be impactful, if you're someone listening to this and watching this today, and you're like, you know what? I believe that I make impactful decisions about my community. And so that impact is where where we've really leaned into is to help people understand by putting your money in a bank that is doing the work, a bank that reflects your values. Do they do the things in your community that reflect what you would do, what you would want them to do? Are they good citizens? Or Are they one of the banks that's on TV every month for discriminating against people and you're subsidizing that discrimination? So I ask everyone, just like I ask myself and everyone I talk to, are you banking your values? Well, I think that's a great segue, Ashley, to talk about Redemption Bank, because here is a bank that is being built right here in Utah to reflect these values of equitable economic access for minority populations, a bank built on specific values, a specific mission 
Talk to us about that, Ashley. What is the vision and the mission of Redemption Bank? Right. And, and that's a great question. And first, you know, I, I want to say that redemption wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the good people in Salt Lake City. I don't think this idea, this vision could exist anywhere other than Utah and in Salt Lake. And a part of it is because, first off, my, my co-founder, Dr. Bernice A. King, and I started with understanding that Utah is a great regulatory environment. And if you don't know Dr. King, she's the youngest daughter of Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr., as we start looking to try to solve this racial wealth gap and do our part in our lifetime, Utah made a lot of sense on paper. And then when we start digging in, we put this bank under contract, we understood that the people of Salt Lake City is what's going to make this bank a success. And so I start off by thanking, you know, just the numerous people in the community who have stood up and absolutely been full-throated supporting us. So when we talk about redemption, every foundation that we work with every nonprofit that you may know and I know have really a very similar mission. There's some group of people who they're trying to give back to, to restore. And that's what redemption means by definition. It is the restoration. It is the giving back. It is the, the rebirth of. And so when you see foundations in a city and a community like Salt Lake working so tirelessly on impact, so tirelessly on redeeming those that need redemption and giving them an opportunity for restoration, then why wouldn't we create a bank that could be that beacon of hope, that catalytic energy, that genus loci in a community that can pull together people and say, this is a collective effort of restoration. And throughout the, our history of which I've talked about today, people in marginalized communities have not received any grace or any mercy from our financial system. This is what redemption is about. It's so exciting. I just love the idea and the hope and the energy of having Redemption Bank right here in Utah in Holiday. Sui Lang, I'd love to bring you into the conversation now to talk a little bit about the role of these minority depository institutions and why we need them as part of our financial and our economic system. What is the role, Sui Ling, of minority depository institutions in this goal of economic inclusion? And why is the banking industry as a whole really invested in growing and strengthening these institutions here and across the whole country? With the term economic inclusion, I want to go back and throw that back to Dr. King. Obviously, that term came directly from him. And he talked about the four pillars on how to achieve true equality here in America. And they were number one, end slavery. Number two, end Jim Crow. Number three, achieve civil rights. And the fourth and final chapter is economic inclusion. And since I've joined the banking and financial services industry, that is our role and responsibility in that industry is to build economic inclusion. And that is our role as a bank, specifically in the bigger picture of achieving true equality here in America. What has been most inspiring to me is to observe how our industry leaders, the ABA, as well as the MBA, American Banks Association, uh, the membership association for all banks and institutions across the country, and the NBA, the National Bankers Association, which is the membership association for all the minority depository institutions, they have fostered a partnership and started to see the impact of minority depository institutions. They've started to see that in recent decades, there's been a significant decline in the number of MDIs 
here in our country. There was a time when there was over 150 Black-owned banks across America. Today, there's less than 20. We're starting to realize as a nation, the significant impact, not just social impact and community impact in terms of serving those local communities where they reside, but also the economic impact. Again, going back to the history that was outlined earlier, there is a trust that certain groups and communities have with Black-owned institutions, Hispanic-owned institutions, Asian or Pacific-owned institutions. And so naturally, you're going to be drawn to doing business with them because of the trust factor. One of the ways that the ABA and the NBA are working towards revitalizing MDIs and bringing them back and strengthening them is fostering mentor-mentee relationships between regional banks like a Zions Bank and an MDI like a Redemption Bank. And through those meaningful relationships, we can strengthen those institutions and therefore it's good for business. One quote I'll quote from Ashley that he's constantly saying in the community is, we can do well and do good. Those are not mutually exclusive goals. And this is just one way in which we can do that. Well, I'm so glad, Sui Ling, that you mentioned this effort towards mentorship in really bringing back a thriving system of minority depository institutions, rebuilding trust between people and institutions. As Ashley mentioned, so many people in the community investing money and time and social capital in Redemption Bank. And I know that Zions Bank is one of those organizations as well. So Elaine, talk to us a little bit about why to Zions in particular, it was important to invest in Redemption specifically. Thank you so much for that question. One piece of history that I want to share about Zions Bank, when we opened our doors in 1873, we were one of the only institutions in America that allowed women to open their own bank accounts without a man's signature. It would be nearly a century later before federal legislation would be passed requiring all banks to do the same. I love sharing that piece of history because it really speaks to who we are as an institution. And one of our core values is equality equality, opportunity, and access. So we are very much committed to closing gaps. So it could be the gender pay gap, could be the racial wealth gap, and it could be the trust gap and opportunity gaps that still exist in our communities as well. So it's very important to us to really invest, not just monetarily, but through building relationships, right? Mending those trust gaps that still exist in ways in which we can build meaningful relationships, meaningful partnerships, and work towards building the world's most inclusive economy. And that is one of the goals that I think we are all committed to being a part of and to doing. Also want to note the mentor-mentee relationship. You know, it's not just, okay, here, a 150-year-old institution mentoring what will be a Redemptions Bank first year in business next year. But there are relationships, right? I view it more as an equitable partnership and both institutions learning from one another. There are a lot of things that a Zions Bank can learn from a Redemption Bank and vice versa. So I see that relationship is more so complementary 
more of an equitable partnership, learning from one another, yet shared commitment to the common goal. Again, closing the racial wealth gap, building economic inclusion, and ultimately building the world's most inclusive economy. Ashley and Sui Lang, I'm so grateful that you joined us here today and we're so excited for everything that lies ahead. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Francis, for this opportunity. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about racial wealth gaps and how we can all support more equitable economic opportunities in our communities. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. So be sure to subscribe to Eccles Business Buzz wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Eccles Alumni for all the latest news from your Eccles Alumni Network. Until next time, Eccles Business Buzz is a production of the David Eccles School of Business and is produced by University FM.